Well, it's good to have all of you with us this morning, and uh, if you're new with us, we are in the middle of a series in the book of James. We've been walking through it kind of chapter by chapter, uh, taking a look at specific subjects that James addresses for us, and we're seeing that James is a brutally practical look at our faith and what it means to be a Christ follower. We're going to continue this morning in James chapter 4, but just to kind of bring us all to a point of, of where we've been, we know that this book was written by a guy named James, good job, good job. Uh, and that James was not the apostle, but uh, uh, the disciple, but he was the brother of Jesus, right? Half brother of Jesus. And uh, he writes this letter. He's writing it to the uh, new Jewish Christians that are being persecuted and they're having to flee from Jerusalem and scattering abroad. If you remember, it is believed to be the first letter or book of the New Testament that was written. It was written before any of the Gospels. And uh, he's just writing to them and telling them how to practically live out their faith, drawing them out of this point of emotion and really calling them to a mental exercise of their faith to think about it. But really what he's doing, he's always pointing us back to Jesus, right? He identifies himself at the beginning of this letter. I, James, a servant or a slave of God and of Jesus Christ. Doesn't even identify himself as the brother of Jesus, but as a slave and a servant of Jesus who's received the grace of God. So week one, we looked at the fact of not if trials and difficult times come in our lives, but when they come, right? And how we're going to live through that and what that means that God didn't cause it, but he is allowing it and he's with us because another big theme we've been seeing is that James is all about maturity, right? Growing up in our faith, becoming mature. And then week two, Pastor Tim talked about the harmony between faith and works, right? Between grace and works. And he even addressed what seems like on the surface a contradiction between the Apostle Paul and James. Paul saying, hey, you're saved by grace alone, faith alone, not of yourselves. And James is saying, yeah, show me your, uh, I'll show you my faith, you show me your works. And it almost seems like it's contradiction, but we see the harmony there that yes, we're saved by grace through faith, not of our works. But even Paul said that it, we've been prepared, good works have been prepared in advance for us to do, right? So what James is really saying, hey, you say that you're saved, I'll believe it, but it should manifest itself in good works. The work should testify to the salvation that we have in Jesus. And then last week was really fun. We talked about our tongues, right? And controlling our tongues and how that we are incapable of doing that. And it's the smallest part of who we are, but yet it yields the most power and control and influence over us. And we have to appeal to the grace of God and his power in us and that we're going to choose to speak life and not death, but really we're going to choose to allow God in us to use our tongue for life and to build up and not for death. And this morning, we're going to go to chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. So if you have your Bibles, get them out, open them, turn them on, whatever you need to do. I want you to flip to James 4 or click there. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. And as you're doing that, I just kind of want to set the stage for us and even just put it out there that what we'll read today, what we'll talk about today, has the potential to come across pretty harsh. What we've seen from James so far is that he doesn't sugarcoat anything, right? And those of you, I hope you're reading along with us every week. It's just one chapter a week. So I hope that some of you, I wish, hope most of you, or all, have read chapter 4. And specifically these first 10 verses. It can seem harsh. It can seem that James is just wielding a big stick and wanting to smack people and call them out and get all up in their business. So as we read that, you may feel that too. You may feel like, wow, he's really stepping on my toes. He's really 
trying to get up in my business, that's not so much the intent to single anyone out, but what James is doing, he's talking about this. The reason that we fight, the reason that there's strife in our lives and with one another. And he's addressing Christians and Christ followers specifically. He says, hey, you want to know why the reason you're fighting and quarreling and there's strife among you? We're like, no, I don't want to know that. And then he's, so he's talking about the Christians and within the church, but even more so outside the church in our everyday relationships, why we're fighting with our spouses, why we're fighting with our brothers and our sisters and our friends and our coworkers and just why we're fighting. Yes, it's in the church, but what he's saying also applies to even if you're not a Christ follower, you'd say, I don't believe in Jesus, why we fight and why we quarrel and why we struggle. And I think this is somewhat conscious and even unconscious. So as we read it, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be like, whoa. Because even preparing this week, I was like, Lord, I just may skip this whole passage. Give me something that's better, that's easier to to digest. But you will find out if you stick with me and we stick with the passage today that on a dime, James turns from just seeming like he's singling you out and he just lifts up the person of Jesus, lifts up the grace of God, lifts up the finished work of Jesus. And he never just is hard without delivering and pointing us back to a place of maturity. But most importantly, he's always focusing us back on Jesus. All right? So stick with me. We're going to read this in chunks today. We're going to read verses 1 through 3, then 4 through 6, then 7 through 10. We'll read about it, and then we'll talk about it. So let's read the first three verses. Here is James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, What is causing quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask God for it, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what gives you pleasure. That's the way to start out a sermon, huh? (laughs) James asks this question, hey, you want to know why there's fighting and quarreling among you? I don't know if James had heard about anything. I mean, they are being scattered abroad. I don't know if he knew of specific instances or if he just knew human nature. You get a bunch of people in a room together, whether they love Jesus or not, and pretty soon they're going to fight, right? How many of you, I won't have you raise your hands, but how many of you recently, currently, or you probably think something's coming, you're you're engaging in some sort of strife or conflict in your life? How many of you have been in church settings where it's been full of strife? You don't even want to go to church because it's so full of strife. Yeah, we love Jesus. Yeah, we love God, but we hate each other. We want what we want. I want to sing this song. No, I want to sing this song. I think the preacher should wear No, I think the preacher should wear that. I think they should. No, I think they should. Strife, quarreling, fighting. So James says, you want to know why? Here's why. And he asks another question. You want to know why? Is it not the evil desires that are at war within you? So remember, he's talking to believers, but what he's saying is, hey, what you have to remember is, yes, God saved your spirit. God saved, gave you a new heart, but there is still evil at war within you. You still live in this world, and there's still a fleshly part of you, and there are desires in you that are contrary to the nature and spirit and power of God in you, and they're warring against each other. Paul would tell us the same thing in Galatians. 
Paul would even say in Romans, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Why? The evil desires at war within me. And then James doesn't leave it there. He just takes the opportunity to define for us what these evil desires are. So as we, as we talk about this, it may not be conscious for you. It may be some unconscious things for you. So as you hear this, I, want, I don't want you automatically to assume that you're doing something wrong or we're pointing it out, but I just want you to even think about your thoughts. Think about your emotions. Think about the, the internal strife and struggle you've had with someone and you've never really had the conversation with them. Because here's what he says. Is it not the evil desires that war within you? He said, here's the first one. You want what you don't have. You're envious. You want what you don't have, so you kill and scheme to get it. Hear that word kill? You could read that and think, wow, is James getting reports that people are murdering each other because they, don't, because they want what they don't have, and so they're just doing it all to get it? What some commentators really believe is that James is kind of hearkening back to the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, to look at a person with hate in your heart is to kill them. Remember that? Even having hatred in your heart is no different in the eyes of God than actually murdering somebody. So what James is saying is, look, you're envious. Your heart is full of envy because you see what other people have and you want it. And how many of you have ever seen other people in a church or wherever get something that you wanted and you know you've been living better than them? And you, you think, well, I, I deserve that. God, I know about them. I know what they're doing. I know what they're not doing. And God, I mean, if you were going to give it to anybody, you should have not given it to them. And that makes you entitled. That just defeats the purpose of the gospel altogether because you're living now on works, right? That with God, there's some earning scale. If I go to church this much, if I give this much, if I read my Bible this much, if I do whatever this much, then God owes me something. And, if I, and I know that I did this way more than they did that and this. God, I deserve it. And you get entitled, then you get bitter, and then you get angry. That's the first one, envy. That's an evil desire. And he takes it a step up. He says, then you become jealous of what others have. And you fight and you quarrel and you devise a plan to take it away from them. I don't know about you. I've never just walked up and took somebody from something unless when I was a, you know, a toddler. Beyond being a toddler, I, I can't remember other than maybe a fight with my brother or my sister that I went up to someone who was not my family and said, I want that, bam, and just take it from them. I can't, if you've done that, kudos, you know, tell me about it later. I've never done that, but in my heart, I've done that, right? In my, in my emotions, I've done that. I've been jealous of what they have and I I want it and I want to get it. And I'm trying to devise a plan. How can I get that? How can I, how can I, you know, not maybe necessarily take it from their hands, but what I'm saying is, is they don't deserve it. I'm entitled to it. I deserve it. And I just want it. So I'm envy, I'm jealous, and then he says this, you want to know why you don't have what you, what you want? So first he tells you the desires, envy, jealousy, selfish, ambition, entitlement. He says, here's why you don't have what you want, because you're not asking God for it. What's he really saying? What he's saying is you don't have what you want because you don't trust God to give it to you. You don't have what you want because you don't see God as your provider. You see yourself as your provider. So you're not even asking God for what you want. You're not even trusting God for what you need. 
You've taken matters into your own hands. You said on one hand, God, you can take care of my eternity. You can save my soul, but you can't help me with my bills. You can't help me with this particular situation, or you can't help me get whatever it is I think I need, and because you gave it to somebody else, you obviously don't want anything to do with me. Therefore, I'm going to take control of my own life. So I don't have what I want because I'm not trusting God for it. And then the other one is he doesn't let anybody off the hook, and he says, and even when you do, even when you do ask God for what you want, you still don't have it because your motives are wrong, because you're selfish, And here's why, because you only want what will bring you pleasure. So you want to know why you're fighting? Because you got evil desires at war within you. You're envious, you're jealous, uh, you're not trusting God, and even when you do ask him, you're just selfish, and uh, you only want what brings you pleasure. See, when when we only want what brings us pleasure, what we fail to do is we fail to look beyond the moment and think about eternity. Or think about the long haul. And we just want what makes us feel good. We don't want what's going to help us grow. We don't want what helps is going to help us mature. We can't see in the moment that if God were to give us what we want, it would destroy us rather than help us. How many of you that are parents or grandparents, or you deal with helping people raise people up, know that if you give them what they want, you know it's going to be more harmful to them than it is going to be good to them. So you have been the bad guy and you said, no. What they want is not bad, but they're not ready for what they want. They can't see that, right? They can't have the the foresight to look into the future and see that if they give me this, then it's going to be great. You know, like giving your kid just a pint of ice cream when they're five. What's going to happen? They're going to puke or their belly's going to hurt. You say, No. And when you only want what brings you pleasure and your motives are wrong and you're just, you're selfish and it's only about you, what you really want God to do is say, okay, Josh, your will will be my will for your life. And I say, that's right, God. You finally figured it out. I want you to do for me what I want you to do for me. And if we do that, it'll be a great partnership. It'll be wonderful. We become the center of our universe rather than saying, God, I want your will for my life. I want your will to be my will, not my will to be your will. That's what James is saying is is, this is the crux of why we're fighting because we want what we want and we don't care about anybody else. Why? Because we become so narrow focused. We're the center of our universe and it's all about us. And I think that that can be so unconscious. I don't think any of us really just wake up one day or every day and say, you know what, I'm going to make life all about me. I just think it's natural. I think it's the human condition, and that's what I think James is revealing to us. The the nature of humanity apart from Jesus as a result of sin entering into the world, it messed us up, and it made life all about us, and we are the center of our universe. So that's, that's the why. And then James, here we're going to read verses 4 through 6. Then he talks about the reality or the effect of living that way. And you'll notice the first two words are just like make you want to put it down. That's what he says. You adulterers! Exclamation point. You adulterers! Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. 
What do you think the scriptures mean when they say the spirit that God has placed within us is filled with envy? But he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So James, not trying to make it sound any better, comes out with this phrase, you adulterers. Some translations say you adulteresses. At first glance, you're thinking, wow, he's gone from saying I'm jealous to I'm cheating on my spouse. But that's not what he's saying. He's hearkening back to God when he spoke to the Old Testament to his children of Israel when they were choosing to live their lives apart from his precepts, apart from his will, apart from his promise. God would say, you adulterous nation, you're choosing someone or something other than me. That's what James is saying here. He's not making an indictment on your marriage. He's not making an indictment on your relationship and saying that you're cheating on the one that you love or whatever. He's saying what you're doing is, it's something much deeper, much more eternal, is you've said that you believe in God and you've started a relationship with him and he saved you, but now what you're doing is, the way you're living your life, you're choosing to live your life according to the world and the way the world functions as it's influenced by sin. What James is saying is, if you want to live that way, you cannot call yourself a friend of God. Because you're making yourself an enemy of God. You're either going to be a friend of God, or you're going to be a friend of the world. And then he says, I'll say it again. Friendship with the world makes us an enemy of God. Those are strong words. It's about this time, and as I was studying, I was like, God, James seems not like, oh my God, but God, you. Seems so legalistic. He seems so hard. It's like he's angry at these people. I don't think he's angry at them. I think what he's doing for them is pleading with them to not live this way because there's so much at stake. Because they're away from everything they've ever known. They're believing in Jesus. The church is just starting. They're trying to figure this whole thing out. And James is saying, you cannot afford to live this way. And he wants to paint the picture for them. But what I love is so beautiful is he never says that God is making himself an enemy of you. You notice that? He said, you are making yourself an enemy of him. God's position remains the same. Why? Because of Jesus. So if you want to live in this way, you want to be envious, you want to be jealous, you want to make life all about yourself, you want to just have impure motives because... Whatever the reason, you want to live that way, you can, but it's not the way that God wants you to live. It's not the way that he's called you to live. It's not expressing friendship with him. You can live that way, but you can't claim that you're a friend of God because it just doesn't work. And then he asks a question in verse 5. Here's what he says. He says, what do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the spirit God has placed within us is filled with envy? Interesting question. Some translations that may be more familiar say this. What do you think it means that God is a jealous God? That he's jealous for you. Now, it's an interesting question because James has just spent four verses giving us the, you know, whack down on being jealous and being envious. And now he's telling us that Asking of this question, leading us to believe that God's spirit that he put in us when we became saved, right? We began a relation that his spirit is envious. 
that his spirit is jealous. Interesting. It's like, James, I, I thought that jealousy equaled enemy of God, not friend of God. But now you're telling me that part of God's spirit, part of his nature is that he's jealous. Seems like a contradiction, James. Seems like you're, you're just confusing But I think what we have to understand is get a proper view of jealousy and realize that God is not jealous of us, but God is jealous for us. And that God is not jealous because he lacks something or because he needs something or because he sees that you got something that he don't got. That's not because every, like what Pastor Tim said, every gift and good and perfect gifts comes from above. Everything we have, everything we are, all comes from him. So when James is saying, do you not understand? What do you think it means when God says that he's jealous for you? Here's what a definition of jealousy is, is that you are fiercely protective and vigilant of what is yours. So when we hear James saying that, don't you know that God is jealous for you? What he's saying is, is that God is fiercely protective and vigilant of you because you are his, because he loves you, because he created you. He is jealous for you, not of you. And he put his own spirit in you, which is in direct contrast with envy and jealousy and entitlement and selfish ambition. And he does not want you to live that way because you're his and he created you and it will destroy you. So if you say that you're jealous because God is jealous and all you want is what you want and it's about you, you don't understand the spirit of God that's in you. You don't understand the one that saved you. You don't understand the one that I claimed at the beginning of this book that I'm a slave of who was my brother, but he saved me by his grace. James is pleading with them, stop living this way. It's going to mess your life up. Because Jesus said it profits a man nothing to gain the whole world and lose his soul in the process. You can scheme and kill and do whatever it is to get what you think you deserve, to get what you want. And in the end, you'll be more broken and empty than before you had it. He's pleading with them. Hey, look at this. How do we know that? Because of verse 6. Verse 6 is when James turns this thing on a dime. Verse 6 is when I think the whole tenor and tone of this passage just comes to the point. And he uses a word, a great conjunction. He says, but. You know, you can't begin a paragraph or a book with the word but. You can't begin a thought with but. Why? Because there's something that comes before it. Didn't you learn that in grammar? Don't start sentences and stuff with conjunctions. It's not proper. I love that James does it right here because here's what he says. But he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. I love that. He's saying, hey, you're jealous, you're envious, you're selfish, you're you're enemy of God, all this stuff. Hey, but here's what I want you to know. But God, he gives us even more grace. And he says to stand against such evil evil desires. Remember that phrase from the beginning, evil desires from verse one, all those evil desires he listed and just was like talking about, he says, but here's the thing. 
the God that is jealous for you, that is fiercely protective and vigilant over you, his ultimate response to that way of life and that sin is he gives you more grace. How amazing is that? He doesn't get angry. He's not upset. He's like, I can't stand these jealous, envious, selfish people asking me for stuff they want, they think they need. It's going to destroy them. Dear Lord, get them out of my presence. Come on, give me some other people. No, he says, hey, I'm still jealous for you. I want to give you grace to overcome it. More grace. Isn't it amazing? He says, more grace. Kind of makes me think of Romans chapter 5, verse 20, when, when Paul is talking and he says this statement. He says, where sin abounds, where sin is just so prevalent, grace abounds all the more, or grace super abounds. What he's saying, hey, when there is sin, come on, grace. There's so much more grace than sin that grace defeats sin every day of the week and twice on Sunday. That God's ultimate response to sin in our life is the power of grace. His unmerited, unearned favor, supernatural empowerment to do what he's called us to do, to be what he's called us to be, because God has never asked us to do something that he hasn't first empowered us to do. And he's saying, here's my response to your jealous, envious, fighting ways. I just want to give you more grace. I just want to help you. I just want to teach you how to live. I don't want you to fight. I don't want you to think that you have to just struggle your whole life to get what you think is yours. I want to give you the ultimate gift. I want to give you more grace. How amazing is that? Just when you think James is some super legalistic mean guy, he says, oh, but don't forget the love of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus in your life. Don't appeal to anything else but that. And then he quotes a passage from the Old Testament. He says, so God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. James is going to get ready to give us some things that we can do to overcome these evil desires, these grace-empowered steps for us to do. But it only comes through humility. It doesn't come through pride. Pride is a barrier to receiving grace from God. Pride is a barrier to really receiving anything from God because when you're prideful, you are the center of your attention and you believe that you can do whatever it is that needs to be done. And when you live in pride, you, you deserve stuff. You're entitled to stuff. But when you live in humility and you have a proper view of sin, it's destructive power, you say, hey, you know what, God, there's nothing I could do to ever save myself. I don't, I don't deserve it. Uh, I can't earn it. No matter how much good stuff I do, no matter how many times I come to church, no matter how many times I raise my hand, no matter how much money I give in the offering, none of that would ever save me. It's all just a response to your grace that saved me because you loved me, because you created me, because you're jealous for me. Can't be prideful. And then he goes into that after having just turned it on a dime for us. He says, so. And again, can't start a a thought, a book, with the word so, because there's something coming in front of it, right? Something preceding it. So, in light of what we just heard, keeping everything in perspective of what was just told to us, verses 7 through 10 are some things that we can do to overcome that. Here's what it says. So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 
Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. As I read that, I hear just four four things, four uh, directives for us from James that we can do. I remember all four of these steps wrapped up in the grace of God, wrapped up and being empowered by God for us to do it. And the first thing he says is this, is, hey, submit yourself to the Lord. So maybe you're here today. Maybe you realized or recognized that whether consciously or unconsciously, this may be a struggle in your life for some reason. There's somebody you continually fight with. Whatever the case may be, I don't know. I have no idea. That's not why I'm preaching this message. I'm simply just preaching this because it came next. And it's his word. First thing, because of the grace of God that we have to do, is just submit to him. That's not a word that's popular in our culture, is it? We don't want to submit to nobody. We don't have to. We're Americans. right? We don't submit. It's all about me. It's what I want. It's what I feel. It's what I deserve. Well, guys, I want you to submit to me. What does submit mean? To completely yield yourself and give yourself to him. Say, God, I place my life in your hands. And I think this is one of the most difficult things for us to do because I think in our culture, we view Jesus and the gospel as an addition or an enhancement to our lives. Oh, yeah, I need God. Yeah, come on, God, right here. I got everything else. You would good, like, right here. Yeah, mm mm-hmm. It's an enhancement. It just makes me better. So we fit God in. And when we do that, we dilute the gospel because we think the gospel is nothing more than making bad people good. Right? It's behavior modification. I need to live better so God help me. What we fail to realize is the gospel has never been about making bad people good. It's been making dead people live. Because the Bible says that we were dead in our transgressions. We were dead in our sin. That's why Jesus gives us eternal life. It's not about making you act better. It's about having you, giving you eternal life, making you live again. So it's not an enhancement. It's not an addition. It's not a remodel or a renovation. It is 100% brand new. Father, I give this, this life of mine to you because you created me. I'm going to submit 100% to you. Now, that's difficult. I'm not saying it's easy, but that's where it begins. Because of the grace you've given me, Father, may your will be my will. You know, I'm so glad that Jesus modeled this for us. Because again, God's not asking us to do something that he didn't already do himself. When Jesus was in the garden, he's praying before he would go to the cross, and he makes this statement. He says, God, Father, this is what he says, Father, if there be any other way, let it be. If this cup can pass from me, like God, Father, if there is uh, another way we can accomplish this thing and I don't have to go to the cross and suffer, if, if there be any other way, please let it be. No answer. Jesus says this, nevertheless, Father, your will be done, not my will. What was Jesus doing? Fully submitting to the will of the Father in that moment. And in the same way, We live our lives. God asks us to do things. We know what we should do. God, if there be any other way, if it doesn't have to be this difficult, if it it could just be different, I'm going to ask you for that. But even if the response is no, okay, God, not my will, 
but yours be done. That's submission. And remember, you're submitting your life into the hands of a loving father who is jealous for you, fiercely protective and vigilant over you, that has the best intentions for you, that wants you to grow, that wants you to mature. He never would do anything to harm. That's what you're submitting to. And he said, that's number one. Number two, after you submit, he said, I want you to resist the devil and he will flee. What's that telling? It's kind of an interesting way to submit to God, now resist the devil. What James is saying, hey, look, there is a real evil in the world. There is a real enemy in the world, and he wants nothing more than to drag you away from living the life that God has called you to live. He wants to drag you from being a friend of God to an enemy of God. He wants to keep you in this prison of jealousy and envy and selfishness and entitlement and pride and whatever the case. He's going to drag you away from that. And you're still going to be tempted to live that way. You're still going to be tempted to make decisions that draw you away from God rather than keep you right next to him. And I just want you to know because of the grace inside of you, I want you to, I want you to resist the devil. Now, we can't do it in our own power, okay? We can only do it with the power of God in us, the grace of God, that when we recognize what it is, we say, Holy Spirit, help me recognize when I'm being envious, when I'm being jealous, when I'm being... All the things we help me recognize that so I can see it and I can resist it because I know because of the power of God in my life, the spirit of God, that he will help me and the devil will flee. It's a promise. What we want is just there never to be temptation. What we want is say, God, I'm jealous. I don't want to be. Help me to never be jealous again. <laughs> yeah, right. It's helped me to recognize when I am and appeal to the spirit of God in me. Say, God, help me. I submit. Not my will. Yours be done. Resist, and he will flee. And then number three is this. He says, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. I think that the first two are part of this. You can't be near to God if you don't submit to him. And I I really don't believe that God ever moves from us. I think we're the one that moves from him. It's settled in God's mind. He finished work of Jesus. You're forgiven. You're accepted. You're beloved. Now it's a choice that we make how we live. And when we make those decisions to live according to the world, to live according to our emotions, we take steps and steps and steps. And I'm not saying you're losing your salvation, so don't don't worry. What I'm saying is, is that emotionally and spiritually, we're growing distant from him. It's harder to hear him. We're clouded with all the stuff we're doing. He's just saying, hey, when you submit yourself, when you begin to resist that, you're just drawing yourself close to God and God will be right there. Why? Because he loves you. Why? Because he wants to give you more grace to overcome these evil desires. So you resist them. You just begin to draw close. How beautiful of a promise it is that God says, hey, just, just come and I'm there. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. You can come to my throne of mercy to find grace and mercy in your time of need. I'm here. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. I did it all in Jesus. My desire is to give you more grace, more grace. Draw near to him. Remember, this is all wrapped up in humility. You first got to admit that maybe you need help. Maybe you do have an issue. And here's the fourth one. The fourth one He says some strong words. He says, wash your hands, purify yourselves, you sinners. Sounds like he's being angry. He says, let let there be tears. Let there be sadness. Let there there be gloom instead of all. And you're like, whoa, James, what are you saying? 
Are you asking me to just not like myself? Are you asking me to beat myself up? Are you asking me to wallow in the condemnation of what I've done? Because I'll be honest with you, that's kind of my first inclination as I read this. But then I read Paul and he says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What I really believe what James is saying is, hey, look, you're accepted and beloved in Jesus. The grace of God is there present for you. But I want you to understand and respect the power of sin in your life. What James is saying, hey, I don't want you to ever make room in your life where you are okay with sin, where you're okay with jealousy and envy and selfishness and entitlement. What he's saying is, that's never something you should laugh about. It's never something that you should just say, well, it's not that big a deal. It's not really going to hurt me. What he's saying is, I want you to be sad, and I want you to kind of and have some tears over the destructive nature of those things for your life. Because here's what I believe. The more you encounter the grace of God and the person of Jesus Christ, the more you hate sin. See, God not only hates sin simply because he's holy and he has no part of it. God also hates sin because it's destructive and it destroys us. God wants us to hate sin not just because it's wrong, but because he wants us to see the destructive nature of it. That it will destroy me, that it will eat me alive, that jealousy and envy and selfishness will destroy my quality of life. It will carve away at my heart and I will become less and less generous, less and less likable, less and less friendly. I will begin to lose all these things. And what James is saying, you have to understand this. You have to respect this. Don't make it as simple as, eh, I did it. It's no big deal. God forgives me. Yes, he forgives you. 100%. No question about it. You're forgiven. I'm not talking about that. What's your attitude towards it? And I guarantee you, The closer you get to God, the more you experience the grace of God, the less you want to do those things. And the more you just say, I don't want any part of it because it's destroying me. I'll give you a window into my life and my struggle. I'll tell you what the fourth one is. For me, for many years, I struggled with pornography. Many years. Struggled with from the time I was a teenager, even into my my marriage. Struggled with it. And I, and I would pray, you know, God, help me, help me, you know, deliver me, deliver me. And I would even, in, in marriage, I said this, I said, you know, Lord, it's not good for, it, it's hurting Lauren, it's hurting Lauren, it's not good for her, it's, it's not good for her. And I remember one day the Lord just stopped me in my tracks and said, Josh, you, you need to, to not quit because of the effect it has on your wife. You need to want to quit because of the effect it has on you. Because it's destroying you. Yes, it's harmful to your relationships. But you have to come to a point where you realize that it is bad for me. I can't do it because it's destroying me. Because what I was saying is, it's not wrong for me, it's wrong for her. It's only harmful to her. No, no, God's saying, Josh, it's destroying your heart. It's destroying you in the process. That's like an addict who is addicted to any type of substance abuse. If he, tries, he or she tries to quit for someone else, it'll never last. Right? Because it's not with the perspective of what it's doing to me. That's what James is saying. Abhor this. Run away from this because of what it's doing to you. And the fourth one is just saying, repent. That's not a word that I really like. It's a word that I grew up with when it was kind of abused in the way that I grew up. Not here, but somewhere else. James, I want you to repent. What's repentance mean? 
Repentance literally means to change your mind. It also has within the definition, meaning a turning from, to turn away from it. James is saying, hey, repent, change your mind. You're not going to live this way. He's been calling us to a mental exercise this whole letter. Think differently. Turn, stop, think differently, and turn away from it and never go back to it. Repent. Say, God, I, I need help. I don't, I don't want to do this. I'm, I just help me. I am doing this. I recognize it. You have the confidence of knowing he's there. He's never going to leave you. He's not going to be angry at you. The true mark of whether or not you really believe the gospel is that when you screw up, you run to God and not from him. That's the true mark. And that's who he is. So here are those four things. Submit. 100%. God, I give it to you. God, your will be done, not mine. Resist the temptations that come, the devil, all those evil desires with the grace of God. Draw close to him. The closer you get to him, the more you see sin for what it really is and those evil desires for what they really are. And just repent. Say, God, man, forgive me. He's already forgiven you. You're just acknowledging it. Just make a decision. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do whatever I need to do. God, I'm going to be fully dependent on you and not my ability, not my will, because let's face it, we don't have a strong enough will to defeat sin. If we did, we wouldn't need Jesus. Say, God, I repent. I just give it to you. See, I, I was concerned about this message because um, I didn't feel like we'd walk away very happy today. And I, I, I really considered not preaching it and finding a different subject matter. But when I got to verse 6, mm, it just brought it home for me. But it gives more grace. That's what I want you to walk out of here today with. The fact that in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your sin, whatever it may be, God's response is grace. All right, He's not here to beat you up. God doesn't point stuff out to us just to make us feel horrible and make us fear for our lives. Now he's pointing it out to us because he wants us to mature. He wants us to grow. He wants us to be happy. Someone said, well, God doesn't want me to be happy. He wants you to have life. He wants you to have joy. And so when I say repent, what I'm calling you to is to put your lives in the hands of a gracious God again. 